get started. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome back to Knowing and Loving Our Doctrines. Uh, we are continuing uh, the series, and I wanted to just give a quick bird's eye view of sort of where we have been uh, from the very beginning, because it, it is helpful, and I want to keep sort of reminding us. Uh, I think it is helpful to see the whole picture, uh, and so so we don't lose the forest for the trees. Uh, so if you you may remember, we started from simply how do we know anything? Uh, you start from the the doctrine of revelation, right, Isaac? The doctrine of revelation and who God is. Um, moving then to creation, what he has done. Creation of everything, creation of humanity. And that, that creation of humanity goes quickly awry. So then we talk about sin. And uh, that moves us then into uh, redemption. What God has done about it, he began to do something about it right away. Um, we looked uh, briefly on covenants, covenant theology, and then redemption accomplished, which was looking at Christ's person and work. So who he is, what he has done through both his humiliation and exaltation. The elevator is broken, if you're wondering, Tyler. Uh, the elevator is broken, by the way, unrelated to the history of redemption. Uh, so, yes, the chain of redemption is not broken. Uh, but make sure nobody goes in it because it is kind of like down a little bit. Uh, anyway, redemption has been accomplished in Christ, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and waiting consummation. And so last week we actually looked at the consummation and judgment, the final judgment that is to come. Um, I wanted to look at it then because it is so closely tied to what Jesus has done. Uh, and so now we're moving, this is sort of the beginning of a major transition into redemption applied. So it's one thing for Christ to do what he has done, but then if it never actually gets applied to anyone, if no one ever actually believes it, it doesn't end up being very helpful. Okay? Uh, so that's where we're going to be really for the rest of the class. Uh, Redemption Applied covers a lot, uh, but that will take us through to the end of May. All right? Any questions just about the big picture? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I can print out a sort of a, a little map. Yeah, other than that, there is, I do have like one, one map that kind of looks at it that way. Um, our confession of faith does basically does it, uh, but the order the order is not strict the way they put it. Um, so, because it is different. Obviously, there's some relation, but it is different than uh, the order of scripture. So, if you did a strict order of scripture, it would be a little bit different than what we just said because. Uh, we are saying things oftentimes about, say, who God is that you don't learn until the New Testament. The easy one being the Trinity. So it's not the same order as, as Scripture. And that's, that's what the confession of faith, that's what theology basically tries to do, try to organize it in a way that is helpful for us. Um, you, you obviously need both, biblical theology and Systematic. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks. Just getting a, a quick glimpse of all that you are and all that you have done uh, is, is incredible. It is amazing. And so we do pray that you would grow in us uh, a gratitude and a thanksgiving that is worthy of your work, your redemption in Christ. And uh, Lord, show us what it means to, to really grasp it and to uh, let it be applied to our own life by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You may think, maybe one quick aside, you may think now we're moving to the, the, the Holy Spirit's time. Um, 
And, but that would be a, a sort of light heresy because you wouldn't say the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in creation, nor would you say Christ wasn't at work in creation. They're always at work together. The Holy Spirit maybe is, is coming more into his own, if I could put it like that, with redemption applied, because he is applying now, as Christ tells us he will do, he's applying what Christ has done and what he has said. Uh, so redemption applied is certainly the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not like the Father and Son are just absent. Okay. Um, so I wanted to actually take a cue from the larger catechism in, in moving into redemption applied, and actually it's going to move us into uh, the church. And so we're going to. This is the beginning of starting to talk about the church for the next three weeks. Uh, what it is what its purpose is, all those sorts of things. And uh, to look at the logic of it, I think, is kind of helpful, the way the larger catechism work, uh, uh, takes us there. So I'm going to do a quick run-through of what the larger catechism does. So <clears throat> it's, it has summarized the redemption accomplished in, in lots of really helpful ways. And then it says, what benefits are they? that Christ has procured or bought or secured by his mediation, he has procured redemption. Okay, so we're talking about redemption with all other benefits of the covenant of grace. How does he do that? By the application of them, which is the work especially of God the Holy Ghost. So I just mentioned that. Who gets these benefits? Who are made partakers of redemption? Well, it is applied and effectually communicated to those whom Christ has bought it for. Seems kind of circular, but who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. So it's, it's intentionally circular because it's applying what he has already done. Paul can say, My I have been crucified with Christ. And Paul can say that by faith, by the Holy Spirit. He died with Jesus. It's a glimpse of, of what that application means. So, uh, who else gets benefits? So, the way they ask it is, can they who have never heard the gospel and know not Jesus Christ, <clears throat> nor believe in him, be saved? Uh, the answer basically being no. Uh, the light of nature, the laws of of conscience and those sorts of things are not sufficient because there is not salvation in any other but in Christ who is the Savior only of his body the church and this is their jumping off point to go to the church are they all they who saved who hear the gospel and live in the church so is all you have to do is just to be in the church to, to sit and hear and become a member of a church is that all you need they would say no all that hear the gospel and live in the visible church are not saved, but they only who are true members of the church invisible. Okay? Any questions just about the logic? So it's like what Christ has done, he's accomplished redemption. How is he going to give that to us by the Holy Spirit? Who is he going to give it to, those who he bought it for? Only those who he has bought it for. Right? Only through faith in Christ. Meaning, those who are in the church invisible. We're tracking? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. It's good that Jesus left, even though they didn't understand it at the time. It's good that he left so that he would send the Holy Spirit. So that the temple that Jesus became, the true temple of God, could go global. And that all of his people could come no matter where they are. All right, so then, just, this is still just continuing with the visible and invisible church, continuing with the large catechism. Uh, what is the visible church? So, the visible church is a society made up of all 
such as in all ages and places of the world, do profess the true religion and of their children. You can think of the visible church as the church that we can see with our eyes. Some of you are members of this visible church. That uh, the visible church obviously is global, very large. Praise God. And there are, even though it does not guarantee salvation, there are special privileges of the visible church. And the list they give here, the visible church has the privilege of being under God's special care and government. Thinking especially of his promise to Peter, the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies. Of enjoying the communion of saints. Right? We're enjoying it now, hopefully, throughout today. Commune with each other. The ordinary means of salvation, which is the word, the sacrament, and church government. And offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes in him shall be saved, and excluding none that will come unto him. So these are the privileges that the visible church has. This is the place that we get to testify to salvation. And we get to enjoy it in all these different ways. Okay? But there is a difference between the visible church and the invisible. Yeah. Church. Yeah. Well, it's not meant to. Um, it just depends on what we think. So we're going to be doing some membership interviews today after lunch. And we will say things like, yes, this should confirm your assurance. This should encourage your assurance. This doesn't guarantee your salvation. So the, the job that we see it as elders is to discern whether they have a credible profession of faith which is different than discerning whether they are saved. Because it's basically recognizing the fact that the church is not God. We are, we, we are binding insofar in, as possible as we can. We are binding and loosing according to the authority that Christ has given us. But we do not exercise that authority perfectly. Where the Catholics are much closer to saying it's guaranteed. If you're in the church, you're saved. Oh, I was going to say, I usually think of like the parable of the sower when I try to do that. Yeah. Some of the seeds fall on the rocky ground and grow up to a wild and right. then fall away. Right. I think when people criticize it, they usually, I forget the word, it's not effervescent grace, it's maybe this effervescent grace. No, Okay, effervescent, like it's yeah, not it's secure. Sparkling. It's sparkly, <laughs> but it doesn't go down <laughs> Interesting. Um, but yeah, the yeah, and the parable... Judas, Judas, was in the Judas was in the visible church, you could say. Uh, the parable of the weeds, the disciples say, do you want us to, to go out and like harvest it? And he said, no, no, it's not the time yet. And so there's always going to be this mixed multitude in the church, the weeds and the tares until the very final day. I saw a hand here and then a hand here. But, I mean, the question is, how do I know? Right. Because I, I, I do think it's a parable. Yeah. Um, and I think it's more of a parable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, w I would just say it's, this is just different. We're talking about something that's different. Uh, we're going to come to assurance, um, but the church, the church can encourage assurance. 
Your membership in the church should encourage you. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, it is the authority of God through human means that says you are in the body of Christ. Uh, we just simply have to allow for the fact that there are people who are falsely converted. So in some ways, it's, it's almost like a logical, uh, what do you do with people you know who have stopped believing and have died? Well, it seems like we would say, the, the most logical response would be, well, they were never actually in the invisible church. It just seems like there's no other good option to describe phenomenon, right? Because you don't want to say, uh, I don't think we want to say what the Catholics say. Like, it's guaranteed. It becomes mechanical. The church ends up substituting for the Spirit of God, right? Taking the place as, like, the one who can dispense grace. No, we do not dispense grace. I'm not dispensing grace to you at the Lord's Supper. We are, the church is the means of grace. The Spirit is the agent. But then, when you have all of these amazing promises to the church, and all of this concern about the authority of the church and all these things, and we'll get to more of this later in the next couple of weeks, but you see that the visible church should still be really, really important. So you wouldn't want to go to some other extreme where, like, well, there is no such thing as the visible church, or the visible church is just like this human idea to gather together to encourage people who believe the same thing. No, that's not what we believe, which we'll come to more later, but we believe it's, it, this is God's idea. This is not a human idea. It says, hey, look at, look at that. We all believe together. We should get together. How about once a week? encourage each other. No, we think God has actually told us to do it and has set it up this way. I think that was a really good question that Colleen asked. I, I can Applying it and yeah. grasping it for ourselves. And yeah. When you, by the time you get through the whole Lord's Prayer, you've dealt with your sin, you've dealt with your neighbor, you've dealt with your weakness, you've dealt yeah. with wanting God's will even when life is really Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think that's another reason why this is true to experience is that people hear the same exact sermon and it 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 hits them totally differently. Um and sometimes it's because one is elect and one is not. So basically the invisible church is the elect. Only God can see it perfectly. Okay? So the evanescent. Evanescent. Which means like vapor. Disappears. I like effervescent better. <laughs> It seems shiny, and then it just. Yeah, Lane. Uh, we're going to talk about it more when we come to effectual calling. All those whom God finally saves. Okay. Or. The ones who God has chosen, yeah. So, what special benefits do those who are in the invisible church enjoy? This is where, this is, gets really amazing. The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. Hallelujah. And then what is that union? It is the union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace. I'm on the middle of page 81. Uh, 
whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. And then the catechism then goes and talks about effectual calling, faith, justification, sanctification, which we will do after we talk about the church. Okay? Um, Notice that language, spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably. Normally we pit spiritual against real, don't we? But this, this is one of Calvin's greatest, I wouldn't call it innovation, but like greatest contribution is that he wants to say it is both spiritual and real. Because he saw what became the Baptist and Anabaptist saying only spiritual. And then he saw Lutherans and Catholics saying it, must, it, it has to be real. Therefore, spiritual is too light of a way to describe it. He's saying, no, it's both. Because the Holy Spirit is alive and in us and is really uniting us to Jesus. So, since that's obviously very clear, <laughs> Seth, <laughs> what does real mean? <laughs> that's what this has come down to. We got to define real. Um, not unreal. I don't know. Um, Really and inseparably. Um, by the Holy Spirit making it effectual. A lot of this is, is, is thinking, how does the Holy Spirit work? Right? They shouldn't be separate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, because in the history of the debate, especially around the Lord's Supper, they were divided. It's either real, really there, like he's really present, or he's not. Calvin wants to say, no, he's really present by the Holy Spirit. Mystical reality can sometimes be used as antidotes. Yeah. 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 Mystical is not a lesser... We're not, we're not trying to like qualify it to the point that it's unreal. Like you just feel like you have union. You actually do. You actually do have union. In the same way that we would say you are considered in Christ such that you are forgiven and seen as righteous. And that is real. That is real in lots of different ways. It just may not be real by sight yet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's very helpful. Totally, that's very helpful. Uh, to define it, if you guys didn't hear it, to define it really more according to the outcomes. What, what happens? when we enjoy union and communion with God, uh, which reminds me, of, it, it's easier to describe the fruits of the Spirit than to define the Holy Spirit. And probably more important to describe the fruits of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, than to try to define the Holy Spirit. Because we want to know what the Holy Spirit is doing, how he ought to be working in us. Which is actually helpful for where, where we're going to go here. Because the description, I think, of a union with Christ, to remind us who Christ is, is described with these three main offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Okay? Um, this is a bit of review from when we talked about what Christ has done and who he is. But does anybody want to ask about 
prophet, priest, or king? A lot of this is simply saying he has fulfilled these roles that were present in Israel. In the middle of 82, I have a quote from A.A. Hodge. He is never only one and not the others. Quote, when he teaches, he is always a priestly and kingly prophet. When he offers sacrifice or intercession for sin, he is always a prophetical or royal priest. So these, these divisions are often distinct but not separate kinds of divisions. But we're going we're gonna to go from here to then talk about what our church describes as total Christ. Okay? But before we do that, anything on prophet, priest, king? Because if we enjoy communion with Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king now, not just when he was uh, physically on earth, incarnate, he's still incarnate, but he still is now the prophet, priest, and king, how are we to enjoy union with such a person? Or what are the effects, as Fred put it? And we would say we enjoy it in, with, and through the church. Okay? So I'm moving to page 83 unless you guys have questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's some debate. Uh, he certainly had a priestly and kingly role, the first Adam. Some debate on whether he had a prophetic role because the prophet is applying the law often to sin. So it's not clear what would be the prophetic role. It could be simply understanding the teaching of God. Do not, you know, enjoy all of this. Do not eat this one tree. Right. Right. Yeah, he certainly needs to be teaching. Yeah. And and, yeah, you're right. And the prophet and priest often is, is pretty, the priest is supposed to also be teaching. So it's pretty related. Yeah, they often get intermingled. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's more kingly, but maybe he's being a kingly prophet or a prophetic king, because the naming is also indicating his authority over them. Samuel would have been prophet and priest. Samuel would have been yes, and sometimes you don't have a prophet. Sometimes you don't have a living prophet. You have the priest who is supposed to be teaching and who is instructing them about the law and continuing the work of the sacrifices. So this, this is actually good to entertain because it shows us how so much of this is interrelated. And part of the prophets, uh, what, they would, what they would teach would say, you are doing the sacrifices wrongly or you're using them superstitiously. So, when we say total Christ, go to page 83, this is what we mean. We are experiencing Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. And to be gospel-centered is to be fixed on the covenant that he has secured, or the work of Christ accomplished. And to be missional is to, be, is to do it in a way that his presence is in, with, and through the church. So when we say missional, we don't just mean send out missionaries. We also mean the community itself shows forth who God is. So some of this is just uh, semantic because in the... In the Reformed history, the classical definite, the marks of the church, so-called three marks of the church, are word, sacrament, and discipline. 
or just word and sacrament. Sometimes people will describe it just as word and sacrament. Sacrament kind of assumes discipline because you, you can't distribute the Lord's Supper or you can't baptize people if you don't have any authority to say you are to be baptized, you are not. So sacrament kind of includes discipline. But word, sacrament, and discipline, as you see there, maps onto prophet, priest, king, or confessional sacramental communal. That's the top table. The bottom table is basically trying to flesh that out a little bit more. Pun intended. What does it mean to experience? Remember, this is about Jesus being alive as our prophet, priest, king now. So we experience his prophet, his, him as our prophet, through the gospel of grace, through preaching, through revelation, through humble submission to the word. These are just some, this is me sort of applying a lot of what Preston taught for those who have been around. To experience Christ our prophet in a missional way, preaching in our language, we do it with translation, it's understandable in context, do it at all times. So this becomes a helpful diagnosis. If our, if our service is so, uh, so overwhelming in its Christianese that someone cannot walk off the street and understand anything that's going on, we would say it's not being very missional. Because we're not, we're not actually allowing Christ to dwell here in a New Haven way. So that takes into account doctrine of creation. That New Haven is actually created, people in New Haven are, is actually created in God's image, right? And to be remade in God's image, they need to hear in their language, culture, that sort of thing. And then you can see priest to focus on the once for all sacrifice. Jesus is interceding. We are assured of his presence. And then also in missional, there's sacramental worship, meaning he's, he's actually present in our worship. Uh, it's local and contextualized, participatory. Participatory as opposed to merely proclamation. So if a church is, is like two songs, long sermon, one song, we would say it's missing out on the full experience of who Christ is. We need to experience Christ in the confession of our sin and the sadness that that ought to bring. We need to experience Christ in, in the joy of hearing absolution or the continual gift of the Lord's Supper. I feel like there are a lot of like blank stares. Is that because you guys all know this? Or this is like putting it in ways that make no sense? Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal, right? Is that it? We're walking through the gospel. We're also, we think Christ has told us to worship this way because this is how we experience him in all the ways that he wants to be our prophet, priest, and king. And, it, and it's also a metric in which to, we can, and the shepherds do this all the time, like we can sort of evaluate how the church is doing if we are more sort of deformed in one way than another. Obviously, no church is going to do this perfectly, but clearly some churches will be like all profit, and it's all about the sermon, it's all about teaching, or they'll be like all king, where it's all about just the community, let's just hang out together and do fellowship. Or it's all priests, and it's very like mystical and sacramental, it's just about this sort of... Un, undescribable experience.
So those were any any anything any questions on why something is in a column? Like why it isn't clear why it's in one column and not the other? And again, we're gonna we're gonna spend another couple weeks on church, church government, and then church and state issues. So I think this will become clear. I just I'm hoping that seeing it in the picture of we have communion with Christ through this lens is, is a helpful way to sort of start the conversation. So whenever we think of Christ our King, you think of discipline in the church, well, it's still gospel-centered discipline. It's still Christ who is our King. So he wants us to repent from our sin, he wants us to fight our sin, and he does it through the cross. Shepherding, overcoming sin, life-on-life discipleship, holistic empowerment, ecclesial evangelists. Well, if that was confusing, the last page will be even more confusing. But let's see if it helps. Yeah, Josh. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, yes. It, I guess it, this is like a summary of what we see throughout Scripture. And so prophet, priest, king are not the only things that Jesus does. It's just a helpful way to summarize the main roles that he plays. But obviously, like Savior, you could, you could sort of put Savior in all of them um, as far as a characteristic. Um, but, yeah. And we could, I could... I could point you to some more detailed scripture um, where it seems like one role is highlighted over others. Like Hebrews 1 says, in, in, in the past, God spoke through his prophets. In the end times, he now spoke to, to us through his son. So God speaking to us through his son in this final way is saying Jesus is the final prophet. It's one example. Yeah, if you. 42 to 45, and they have done tons of work going to the truth Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is our final priest. He's the final sacrifice. So we are not re sacrificing him, but he's, we are experiencing him as our priest again and again. And he is the one who reigns, he's exalted over all powers. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. The, you mean, are there? I mean, just, just even for you know, this Sunday school class. Yeah, you, there are definitely some good commentaries on the confession of faith, is that, if that's what you're asking. Yeah, I'm trying to think when we've done theology class in the past, there was one that was recommended. The one, the one by Charles Hodge, I think, was the one that was recommended. That's a good one. Um, there's others. That's from, like, 19th century. Uh, there's others. Sproul has a three-volume one. Yeah. I think we probably do, or down here somewhere. Yeah. Christian, if, if you get the app, Christian Creeds and Reformed Confessions, you can also um, find it there, and then that also includes all of the scripture citations to every single verse, like ev- practically every word. So, so then this last page, page 84, is basically me trying to, again, put more, help us to understand these two paradigms of the person of Christ and the work of Christ, or um, the word 
of God becoming flesh. Okay? Throughout, as, as Preston would often say, throughout redemptive history, there's never a time where there's not both covenant and temple at work. Meaning, the covenant is something that has been instituted and accomplished by God, and the temple being the place in which that either was experienced and or will continue to be experienced. So the temple was a place where they remembered the law given once for all at Mount Sinai and where they knew that God would be present. So you, so you just see a lot of different ways in which this plays out in Scripture. There's a global aspect to the covenant, meaning it, can, it is true of anyone. <clears throat> when we proclaim what Christ has done in the gospel, it is irrespective of anybody's background, culture, language, whatever. So that's why I say it's global there or universal in line three. But it's not just abstract. It has to become local, too. So it's one thing to say Christ died for the sins of the world. But what does it mean for me to believe that he died for me in this place, the one who lives now in New Haven? Or what would the church look like if it was the word had become the flesh of New Haven? Do you have a question? Yeah. What do you mean? I'm not I mean, the, the good news of the invisible church is that we can go out and proclaim the gospel to anyone because we don't know who is elect and who's not. So it actually gives us confidence, like the, like the parable of the sower, to say, I can cast my seed as far and wide as possible, and it is God who is going to do the work. <laughs> well, we keep working. And we keep trying. Yeah? One. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We, we need, and, and we need that witness. It's always going to come to us in the way that we can receive it. Uh, and that's why Christ, Christ is the ultimate paradigm, right? The Word became flesh. The Word, he didn't become a tiger so that we would not be able to relate to him. And thank God he didn't just stay in heaven or come down in his full glory because that would have just been Sinai again and no one could touch him. Some of these, I'm not going to go through every one, um, and it's not in any particular order. Um, let me draw your attention to, let's see, 16. I took from a missiologist named Andrew Walls, and he points out how there is always a pilgrim aspect to Christianity and an indigenous aspect to Christianity. What he means by that is uh, 
the pilgrim aspect is you are always not fully at home, no matter where your home is. So wherever Christianity goes in the world, that's still not fully your home. Yet, there's also an indigenous nature to Christianity, and I do think it's unique among the world religions because it takes shape in the places and manners and locales of where it is. Christianity goes wrong when we try to import a culture onto wherever we're going. So there's been a bad history of that often, but uh, there's also wonderful examples of Christianity sort of appreciating the indigenous culture. And a while back, we had that creed, if you remember, I know Tyler remembers, we had the creed that, is reference, that references the hyenas. Like he's, he's raised from the dead from the realm of the hyenas or something, which is from the Maasai tribe. Because um, they're giving voice to sort of what it means to say Christ is raised from the dead in that culture. So, so a cultural imperialism is the, is the opposite of what a missionary should do. Because, because you're actually saying, in order to know Christ, you have to become more like my culture. So this ends up motivating our church planting, right? We want to see not just Christ proclaimed in the abstract. We're not just going to like videotape some generic sermon on the gospel and say everyone should listen to this. We're going to say it needs to take shape in every different part of uh, the world. Any of these pairs you guys want to ask about? The ones with question marks are the ones I'm, that are, I'm less sure on, <laughs> that are a little less, especially less, uh, I think 19 is helpful. But there's a once for all aspect and a continual aspect. Once for all, doesn't change, happened. But we need to remember, go back to it over and over, continually apply it to us. Nobody has a pair that doesn't make sense? Yeah, because the, the I think it's similar to uh, the global and local. The once for all is the thing that does not change and is true no matter what. Meaning it's a historical fact that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Um, but we need, to, we need to continually put that description into local languages and cultures and, and describe it over and over again because that's how it gets applied to us. <laughs> you just wait. Yeah, that 14 maybe should have some question marks. <laughs> I know this has a question mark next to it, but I'm just curious to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, we are recreating, God is recreating the world in redemption, you could say. But that's different than he's wiping out all of creation and starting over. Yeah. And so redemption includes creation in that way. In the same way that we see different churches, he, when, when someone converts, they don't start talking a new language. They're still, we're still speaking English. I see that as like a creational thing. Maybe restoration would be a better word. Better word than redemption or creation. It's it's still restoration of what God created. Yeah. Really? 
Well, I think they're there because the, if you think of the missional, the temple, the presence of Christ, we want Christ, who is the one who accomplished our redemption, to inhabit every type of language, culture, poem, whatever. And the, the language, culture, poem, those things are, I see it as part of creation because they are uh, uh, what is given from the start. It's like where we start, where every person starts. We start from being made in the image of God with, a certain, with all sorts of assumptions and cultures and languages that are tinged both with sin and God's intent. And so redemption restores like the original purpose of what does it mean to be an English speaker in New Haven who is in Christ? But again, these are just sort of ways to think about how Christ is applying his redemption to us. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of going rogue here. No, um, because I think, again, it's because the, the gospel is what is transcultural or acultural. Um, Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead, all those things. That is the objective truth, regardless of whether anyone believes it. But we never experience it that way. That's another important thing about these paradigms. You can't have one without the other, truly. We don't have the word of God without the flesh, right? We will always read it or think of it in English, for instance. So the subjective part is, is sort of owning it in that personal subjective way. The Holy Spirit is applying Christ to us in a way that we can understand it, and live it out. Just like at Pentecost, they are preaching the gospel and people are hearing it in their own language. So tongues in that space is language. So we need to hear it in our subjective language. All right. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would be here now in this place. Uh, Lord, would you fulfill the promises that you have so graciously given to us in Christ? May he be exalted. May you draw us closer to yourself and to one another, that we would uh, be the body of Christ united to him in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.